Lord, what a blessing it is to be here this evening again on this Monday night, uh, gathered together with those that you created and those who love your word and and want to hear you speak. And um, Lord, would you just gather us to yourself in Christ? Would you uh, speak to us powerfully through your word by the power of your spirit and, and exalt Jesus? Would you open up your word and give light? Um, would you bless everyone here and bring those that are coming safely and, and bless those who, uh, who are not here tonight, Lord? And um, just thank you for, for being such a gracious God and sh- proving your love to us in Christ. Would you bless this time? Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're in Romans 5. We'll read the first 11 verses tonight, and I'll teach on those. I'm calling this, this talk an unshakable hope. Paul really, um, really is talking about the hope that we have in Christ as he moves along in this letter. Um, let me go ahead and read... Romans 5, 1 through 11 right now. Paul picks up and he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Amen. Amen. So I want to talk with you before we jump into this text and into an unsha- the unshakable hope that we have in Jesus. I just want to open up with actually the opposite of hope, which is hopelessness. Um, let me read this to you. Death is after all, this is a quote, death is after all the greatest of existential pains. Quote, everything one achieves in life, even love, occurs in an express train racing toward death. Cocteau observed. This is in a little online article. To smoke opium is to get out of the train while it is still moving. It is to concern oneself with something other than life or death. This is on the opioid crisis, um, New York Times article from 2018. He says, if Marx posited that religion is the opiate of the people, then we have reached a new, more clarifying moment in the history of the West. Opiates are now the religion of the people. A verse by the poet William Brewer sums up this new world. Where once was faith, there are sirens. Red light spinning, door to door, a record 24. In one day, all the bodies at the morgue filled with light. Um, and he's just talking about the hopelessness of folks that see death as the end and that don't have 
hope in in Christ, don't have a living hope, don't have the hope that that we that we have and that Paul presents here that is in Christ offered to all who trust in Christ. Um, it makes me think of this this whole text makes me and this theme of hope makes me think of um, that great movie that's based on the um, the Stephen King novel Shawshank Redemption, and uh, which I haven't seen in over a decade. But Andy Dufresne, the main character in the film, he says something like, "Hope is." Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Um, so here Paul moves into another section of this amazing letter to the church in Rome. After, after preparing us for the gospel, he has, he has given us the gospel in its glory, which we focused in on a couple weeks ago. Um, and he spends, after intro and presenting his thesis for the book, um, that in the gospel, God shows us his righteousness, but he shows his righteousness to us in a saving way, not through the law, though the law points to it, but through Christ. Um, but he, for the next two chapters, as, as we know, in 1, 2, and 3, he uh, makes his case uh, that no one is righteous, not a single person, no Jew, no Gentile. However, he says, in the fullness of time, apart from the law, as I said, and through the law, uh, excuse me, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, God sent his son to save us. Um, Christ, the righteous, bore the wrath of God in our place, he says in Romans 3, starting in verse 21. He bore our wrath. He, was, he became our propitiation. And Paul says, this is nothing new. And then he moves into chapter 4, which we were in last week, and says, Abraham was not considered righteous um, with, a, uh, with an outsider alien righteousness. Um, through what he did, through his behavior, through his performance, through his law-keeping, but through whom he believed in whom he trusted God. Um, and he was reckoned with a righteousness that was not his, that was God's, that was considered his, um, received through faith before he was circumcised as a sign and a seal of that received righteousness. And way before, so years before he was circumcised and 400 years before the law even came. So Paul's saying, this is, this is nothing new. This was the gospel concealed um, in the Old Testament and has now been revealed in Christ. Um, so this is just a bit of review. Now, what is one massive consequence of this secure salvation in Christ purchased for us by Christ? That is indeed union with Christ by faith. And Paul says here, he starts to launch into this theme of hope. It's hope. We have an unshakable, unassailable hope in something that will last forever. It will carry us because he will carry us through death. It will bring us through death into a new creation that will never die or grow old. Um, the word hope here and throughout Paul's letters and the larger New Testament is not, you've heard this before if you've been in any amount of Bible studies, but it's not equivalent to our word hope. That's worth saying just briefly. Um, the, the New Testament word, which here is elpis, is a confident expectation. I think expectation, certainly confident expectation is just a better way to put it. Um, based on solid reasons or evidence. So the word, the word translated hope here in the Greek really means a confident expectation based on solid reasons or evidence. So less like, I hope it won't rain today. That's not, that's not what the word means that Paul's using. The hope that we have in Christ is not, I hope it won't rain today, but more like, I expect that tomorrow the sun will rise. We have very good reasons for expecting the sun to rise tomorrow. Um, we have even better reasons for expecting that... Uh, we will enter into fully the glory that is God's and that we are connected to in Christ Jesus through faith. Um, so Paul launches into this, this unassailable hope now. 
Um, just point one, I boast in the hope of glory. Uh, uh, I boast in the hope of glory. Let's just move through the verses here. Um, let me turn back. So Paul says, therefore, in verse one, therefore, so in other words, in light of everything I've written, right? He's pulling, pulling on the four chapters preceding. Therefore, um, having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith, not, you know, having, having been considered in right, in fully right standing with the living God, who can't abide with sin, who can't abide with evil. Um, and he's not saying that I've been, that we've been justified, that we've been declared in right standing and not guilty uh, and free uh, through our own performance, right? He's made the case for that, but rather by faith. Having been justified by faith, having been declared righteous, not by my works or yours, but by the works of another, received with the open hand of faith. So therefore, having since, since we have been justified, not by works, but by faith, by faith in another, right? By faith in the works of another, Jesus. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, to underline, we've talked about this before, but we have peace with God. And why do we have peace with God? How can Paul say that truly? Well, because we've been, sorry, tautological, but because we've been justified. That's right. Uh, we have been, so the wrath of God is upon all human beings, yeah. uh, and they're born in their unregenerate state, and so... Uh, through faith, we've been put in a right standing mm-hmm. where God sees us uh, cloaked in the righteousness of his son. Mm-hmm. What Martin Luther calls the great exchange, right? Right, and so therefore we can be uh, at peace or I think what's more or less equivalent, reconciled with God. So when we look to Jesus, what Paul says here and elsewhere in Second Corinthians 5 and Martin Luther calls the great exchange is when we look to Jesus by faith and says, I believe that you're the Lord and Savior, that you died for me, that you lived for me, that you rose for me, um, that I deserve what you got, that he gives to us his righteousness and what we get, what, excuse me, he gives to us his righteousness and he takes from us the wrath that we deserved, right? And so there's a sense in which, just to use the, the language that Paul's using here and everything that Jordan said is, is spot on, we get peace because he got wrath or to use an antinomy, to use, an, to use an antonym for peace, we get peace because the war that was coming to us, the missiles that were pointed at us justly because of our misdeeds, because of our, the posture of our hearts, because of the fact that we were born and operate in sin and rebellion against God and law-breaking and selfishness and pride and arrogance and all sorts of sins that Paul's already listed. Um, Jesus stepped in between us and the wrath of God and, and became that propitiation, that wrath bearer. He took the war and he gave us, he gave us the peace that he, by rights and by his, own, by his own life, had and took our war. So, so Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, we have peace with God through. And again, he, he doesn't leave it to question, right? He's reminding us, hey, it's only through Jesus Christ. It's through we are connected to him by faith, and it's through his life and it's through his death that we have this peace. He's our peace broker. He's the one who brings us peace. It's through Jesus. And, and notice that he says not just our, he says Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's a, 
Um, he's not, this is a reminder, he's not just our Savior. There's no such thing as Jesus as Savior but not Lord. He is our Lord, and he is the Lord. He is the King of kings. And he is the Lord, and every knee will bow to him. And so he has saved us, but he's also the Lord over all creation. And without him, nothing would have been made that has been made. Through him have all things, through him have all things been made. God spoke and by his word made all things, and Christ is that word. And so this is the one who himself has secured our peace. It is secure when we look to him, regardless of our feelings, regardless of our circumstances. Um, so Paul moves on. Through him, Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace, grace in which we stand. Stand, excuse me. Verse, verse two, access, that word just means, it means what it means. It means literally freedom to enter. I think that's beautiful. Through him, we have also obtained, through Jesus, not through our own efforts, through his efforts, we've obtained freedom to enter into this right relationship with God where he, that favor, that grace, that word, uh, this is, does the ESV translate it favor here? Uh, and that grace, that, that word grace we've talked about before means favor. Through Jesus Christ, we have freedom, we have uh, freedom to enter into a relationship with God where he's full of favor for us. He smiles when he sees us. He doesn't frown. He doesn't have crossed arms. There's no more war. There's only peace for us. And it's when we enter in through the torn body and the shed blood of Jesus by faith that we have full access to, um, to the living God. Otherwise we, would, otherwise, we would have war. And outside of, Christ, outside of faith in Christ, there will be war and only war for those who are not hiding in Christ by faith, for those who are entering before God on judgment day based on their own performance, right? And Paul's made that super, super clear, and he'll continue to make that clear and tease that out throughout the rest of the letter. Um, but that's packed into this, this here. Another thing that we see here, through him we have also obtained access by faith, freedom to enter into this grace in which we stand. So this, this uninhibited, full access to the living God, not only as not just as worshipers, but as full children, which again, Paul will very much expand on, as, as children with full rights to open access to the Father, the Father who's full of favor and pleasure when he sees us because of his son, Jesus Christ. This is, um, I'm not sure if I wrote this down here, but it certainly comes to mind. This is, uh, this is real. To me, this speaks very much of the temple. And I remember writing that down at some point. I don't see it here in my notes, but... Um, Maybe maybe it comes up later too, but this this idea and I, I can't I can't know because I'm not I'm not Paul and I'm not in his head right now. But with how well he knew the Old Testament as a Jew and the fact that the whole law was based on it was built around this cultus is what theologians would call it of this system of temple tabernacle then temple sacrifices the priest all the all the uh, all the sacrifices that were made from blemishless, innocent things so that the guilty could go in, lawbreakers like you and I could go in, offer an innocent sacrifice and be in God's presence. Um, but it was very exclusive, right? You, on all the face of the planet Earth, there was one nation that had been given access to God through his word and only through his word. Again, we hear, when, we, when, we, when we hear that, we should hear at the pointer to Jesus. It's only through his word that we have access. So this one nation on planet Earth, a tiny nation, if you look at a map, even of the eastern side of the Mediterranean, Israel's like way down here. It's just this tiny nation at the crossroads of the, surrounded by these huge empires. And in that nation, there's only one place where the temple is, and that's Jerusalem. And it's at the highest, most inaccessible part of the city. And it's, and then 
even if you get there as a, you can only, if you're not a Jew, you can only go so far. You can't, you can only still remain in the court of the Gentiles. And then, and then if you're a Jewish woman, then you can only go so far. And then if you're a Jewish man, you can only go so far, but then you have to be of the tribe, one tribe of the 12 tribes of Israel, a Levite of the priestly tribe to get in even closer. And then you have to be, you have to be a certain type a certain chosen of that Levitical tribe to offer sacrifices and then to go into the holy, the most holy place and offer that sacrifice once a year to come into the presence of the living God. You, it's once a year. It's one person within that one tribe, that one nation as a Jewish man. It's just, it gets more and more. It's these concentric reigns of exclusivity where God allows access to him. And, and this language here very much to me is harnessing all that and saying, Jesus Christ, if you can imagine, and maybe I've used this illustration before, but He's like a laser that cut, it bores through and cuts through all those concentric circles and those barriers as the very word of God to go right into the very heart of the Holy of Holies where God meets with his people through one appointed priest of one tribe of one nation once a year, exactly according to his word, all through blood. And as his body is torn on that cross, he blows open. He bores a hole straight through the most exclusive rings all the way to the living God. And he blows that way open and the, and the curtain is torn. And as we come in Christ and through faith in Christ, we have open access all the way into the very lap, if I can say that, the very lap of the living God as our Father because, because we have the access that Christ himself has as we're clothed in Christ through faith. And that's, I feel like that's really what Paul's harnessing here is he says, through him, we've also obtained access, you know, freedom to enter by faith into this grace in which we stand, right? And this favor that we have from God, this grace is something that we stand in. We, um, there's a lot that could be said there, but um, we stand, what I've said here, and I'd love to hear from y'all, we stand in grace. It's our, again, it's the favor of God that's in Christ. It's our firm, it's our firm ground. The soil in which we're planted, the favor of God in Christ received by faith is the foundation of the child of God. It's not our performance. It's not our circumstance. It's not our, it's not our feelings. It's, it's the, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's, the, the, that fact has got me through some of the darkest days in my life. Um, feelings are like this. Circumstances are like this. But the, wor- the finished work of Christ for you, receiving it by faith, a faith that is his gift to you. It's not the quality of your faith. It's, it's the quality of the one that you're believing in, that you're having faith in. It's, it's, he is the one that our salvation hangs on, that our free access to God hangs on. Build your life on that. That's the favor that you stand in. Um, any comments on that before we move to, let me finish, I'll finish the verse and then we'll move, to, move on to verse 3. Anything that hits you there? Anything that strikes you? Anything you want to open up, comment on? Um, one thing that uh, I was thinking about actually today with these verses, uh, it's actually in the Napoleon movie. Hmm. I had to bring it in. Yeah. Come on, yeah. But there's a, and this is not a total spoiler if you haven't seen the movie, but there's a scene when Napoleon's trying to make peace. He loses at Waterloo. What? No. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I'm sorry. He's trying to make peace uh, early on with Britain. And. Um, there's a scene in the movie when Napoleon's talking to the king, King George's ambassador, and he's incredibly frustrated because the king won't receive him, you know, mm-hmm. and he just kind of has a little tantrum. Yeah. And then the British ambassador, like, after he storms out, he says, you know, 
such poor manners. But then, you know, afterwards, uh, Napoleon's advisor comes to him and says, listen, here's the problem. Like, the royal houses of Europe just see you as this Corsican ruffian. Yeah. You're not one of them. And the king's, king of England is not going to entertain you. And I think that's, like, kind of what Paul's getting at here, too. I mean, it's a temple metaphor, but it's also like mm-hmm. having access to the king or the queen of England in that you have to be granted yeah. special access, uh, and Napoleon was it. So it's kind of like the metaphor of, of wrath and war versus peace. There's that. Another thing I thought about is the, the word stand reminds me a lot of Ephesians 6. Oh, big time. I almost brought that up. Is that but I didn't. Yeah, that's good. Where uh, put on the form of God, uh, able to stand Stand in the evil day. In the evil day. And after, uh, and they he says stand. He says stand a number of times. And And after after doing all these things, stand firm. Yeah. Stand firm. Yeah. So I think that's really what he means. Is like stand firm. And so that is uh, really doesn't quite come across just with the word stand, mm-hmm. but it's like... I think it's... It reminds me of also like Hebrews when he says, like, we enter boldly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're not just like... Um, we don't have this... And you're, you're not crawling in. and you this trepidatious relationship like the, the priest, you know, that's right. who might have been struck down and had been that's yanked right. out by a rope. That's right. We can, like, actually... Uh, enter and you know be firm and, and there's I think there's this idea too tied into what you just said of the, the probably the military metaphor of like we stand we stand on a wide open space pulling from the psalms we stand we stand as 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 soldiers um, uh, we stand our ground and how do we and so in other words we contend not based on our own efforts but we contend for that grace that is fully available to us in Christ and how do we do that let me open that up that's a great how do we how do we stand in the full favor of God received by faith in Christ Jesus that he's purchased for us? How do we practically day to day how do we do that? We don't crawl in, we're not trepidatious. How does that happen? How can we know what that favor is? How can we know what's been granted to us? What do y'all think? I know that it's, it's said over and over again, but for a reason. I think that some of the ways that we do that, the tried and true, we have to know, the way that we know God in Christ is through his word, right? We stand on his promises by knowing his promises and believing them, and they all converge on Christ Jesus. Every promise is yes and amen. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Christ. And so I think to know his word, to meditate, what does the righteous, the Psalm 1 man do? He meditates on God's word day and night. Who is that but Jesus Christ himself? And so, so knowing the word, knowing Jesus through the word, knowing that he is the word that all the words point to, knowing, you know, the more that we know the word and that it points to Christ and that he fulfills it for us in our place as our exemplar, but also as our substitute and representative and our propitiation, our wrath bearer and our own righteousness and our, and our reason for rejoicing and our hope. Um, we, uh, the, the more we press into the word and, and see it taking us to that Christ, the more confidence we have in him, not in ourselves, but yes, and how sinful we are, but how, how we are covered in his righteousness and how our sins have been propitiated. They've been taken care of. They've been expiated. They've been wiped away. Um, we've been brought fully into the, into the good grace of the living God through his son, Jesus Christ. And, um, and then we, we know how to we know how to fight. We know how to contend. We, we, so being in his word, being people of his word, soaking in his word, having his words be our words, 
praying his word, being people of word and prayer, being people of community, Christian community, being people who share our faith boldly. I think I know these are um, these are well these are well used, uh, well understood ways of talking about taking uh, standing in the grace of God. But I think that they're well used for a reason. I think that we can't we can't look past them. Um, just these basic disciplines. So, and more could be said there. I'm glad you brought that up too, Jordan, because um, it reminds me of last week, maybe it was, that I, I had this sort of hackneyed, um, half-remembered illustration that I don't think it was in my notes, but uh, I, I said there was an illustration about somebody, I knew it was a true story, about somebody that was granted access to the President of the United States uh, by meeting his son, and I remembered afterwards it was a, it was it, it is a true story. It is about a Civil War soldier uh, that met Kermit. I believe his name was Kermit. It wasn't Kermit one of the uh, one of Lincoln's? It was Lincoln who was the president, and it was during the Civil War. And I believe it was Kermit that he met, and he was sitting on a bench because he was trying to gain access. He, he was basically trying to. I think this is the story. Um, he was trying to. He had fought for a number of years and. He had like three brothers who had all been killed in the Civil War, and he was basically, he was the only one that could go back. He was the only son left, and he was the only uh, basically way that, he, that his mom, I think who had lost her husband probably too, um, was like, we're going to be able to be provided for as he went back to the farm and, and, t- and, and tilled the farm and took care of her. And so he was basically trying to gain access to someone that could say, hey, you're not a shirker, go back home, we don't want you to die, take care of your mom. Something like that, but I remember it was a Civil War soldier. He needed access to the president or to somebody that could give him the go-ahead. He couldn't get it. He was sitting on a bench, dejected in D.C., and, and Kermit, one of, one of Lincoln's sons, came up to him and talked to him, found out his story, brought him right in, walked right in through the war councils that were going on. Lincoln was literally with his war cabinet, like, having a meeting, and his son walked in, opened the door, and said, and they was like, what? And he said, this is, this, here's this guy's story. Gave him straight access because he was coming with the sun. That's a, an inadequate, every example is inadequate, but is a, it's an inadequate example, but I think it gets again at the idea that we have freedom to enter through Jesus Christ, you know, as we're cloaked in him by faith. Um, it's because of him. So be bold because we are cloaked in him through faith. Um, okay. And, and when you sin, when you fall into sin, be bold, not because you don't think you're going to do it again, but because you're cloaked in his righteousness and go, go to God and be quick to repent and, uh, and run to him, not away from him. Okay. So Paul says this, let's move on. He says in the last bit of verse two, he says, and we rejoice in hope, in hope. There's that word of the glory of God. Um, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we stand in his favor and we rejoice in, in the hope of the glory of God. We shall be made like him fully is what Paul's saying here. This takes, uh, this takes us back to the unfallen creation that when we were made in his image, unfallen to be in perfect relationship with him, un, unmitigated, uh, un, unstained by sin. But sin screwed that up. Sin severed us from the, our life source, from our maker. Um, but it also shoots us forward to the new creation that's going to be fully realized one day when Christ returns, right? When we see him, Paul says elsewhere, we will be made fully like him. We will be made like him. Um, the seed in us that, is, that, that comes, the mint that, that is planted in us, the seed of new life, the seed of God himself, 
who comes to take up residence in us the minute that we trust in Christ, will come to full flower one day. Broken as we are, as much as we fail, as much as we sin, the life of God in us through faith, the real presence of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ will bring us to glory. It'll unite us. We're fully united to Christ now. We're truly united to Christ. But one day we will be, we will be unable to sin. Um, you know, non posse picare in the Latin, to use Augustine's phrase. Not able, non posse picare, not able to sin, right? Um, right, right now, because of Christ, in, this, in, in these shadow lands where we're between the, the life of God is truly in us and the power of sin has been broken, but we're still, we still sin. We're not sinners. We're saints. We're characterized by the life of Christ in us. We're not characterized by our sin anymore. We're not enthralled to sin anymore, but we still sin. And death is no longer our tormentor. Death is, Jesus is made of death a gardener, right? It, death is a doorway into life, which I think Chase or someone said on Sunday. But we, um, one day we'll be unable to sin when we're glorified. But now we are non picare. What does that mean? Able not to sin. Now we are able not to sin. Before Christ, we were no. not, not able, able not to sin. Not to sin. Non passe. Non picare. Right? A little Latin. That wasn't in the in the notes, but that's for free. All right. Um, so when we see him, we'll be made like him. The seed in us will grow to full flower. So question for the class. This word translated rejoice in the ESV most plainly means, okay, the plain dictionary definition of this word rejoice in the Greek, it means to boast or to brag. Um, why does the ESV translate it rejoice, do you think? I'd, I'm not sure. And what does Paul mean? If indeed the plain meaning here is, uh, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we, we boast. We boast in hope of the glory of God. So, uh, why? okay, there's a, I just noticed there's an ESV footnote here. Yeah, it does say, or boast, right? So why, would, why do you think, let's just do a little bit of sort of, act like you're a translator. Why would they have translated it to rejoice? Boasting has a bit of a negative connotation yep. in, in English, yep. or at least our culture. Yep. But does the ESV translate the, like in Corinth, I think it's Corinthians, when he says, I boast, I boast in nothing but, like, Paul does use the same word, boast. Yes, right. he does use that word. I wonder if that's the same Greek word, though. Yeah, that's what, yeah. That's what I'm wondering. Yeah, I'll have to check that. I didn't check that but this can time. can it also mean glory? Like, to glory in something? Yeah, I think that's a good... Yeah, and, and I think... Um, yeah, I think that it has it can have a negative connotation. It can it can tend to, you know, when they say um, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, um, we can see how that's a connotation of, of boaster brag, and also maybe it's an effort to soften um, boaster brag because we don't want it. It, does, it obviously is is Paul saying we brag obnoxiously about our hope and partaking of God's glory, both now and more fully in the future. Of course, he's not saying that, right? They don't want the reader to think that. Um, how do we know that? Look at Everything that's preceded what he, what he writes here in chapter 5. Look at Romans 1 through 4. Um, you know, what, clearly what we deserve is, is to be damned to hell forever. And he chastised the Jews for boasting in their 
right. in the law. Right. We can't brag about any of God's favor that has been fully poured out on us in Christ because we earned death, but he paid that debt and gave us his life. Paul, Paul encapsulates this in Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, which it's worth me, I think, just reading right now. Um, just this wonderful two verses that, that encapsulate this truth where Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved, right? That's essentially the work of another, the favor of God given to us, not through our own desert, but through the desert of Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. Jesus is sort of explaining, okay, again, this, this is what grace means. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Do you ever brag about a gift you're given? You can't, no. Verse 9, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So he expressly says that. Um, he used the same, the same Greek word there, by the way. Um, so that no one may boast. So we rejoice, yes, this captures much of the sense, but if we just press into this a little more, um, and I would recommend this as you come across, come across little problems in the scriptures, press into it, don't run away from it. A lot of times that's what, that's what helps to yield more of the calorie content of what's, um, of what's being said as you meditate on that. Why, why if Paul is saying, um, if Paul is saying we, we boast in hope of the glory of God, um, I think rejoice captures much of the sense, uh, but if I may be so bold, I think it misses something because the plain meaning of the word is boast. I think Paul's saying that it's the opposite of being ashamed. Remember how he said in his thesis for the whole letter in Romans 1, 16 and 17, he said, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for in it the righteousness of of God is revealed uh, through faith from first to last for the righteous shall live by faith. Um, so I think that that hooks into the fact that it's not, our, it's not our performance that we're boasting in, quite the opposite. When we boast in the gospel, who are we boasting in? We're boasting in Jesus Christ. When we boast in the glory that we've been brought into, it's really the opposite of boasting about our own performance because a huge part of the boasting of the gospel is saying it's clearly laying out what the gospel is. And the good news of the gospel is that what I deserve, what I've merited through my own performance is the wrath, the just wrath of God. Humbling to the dust. But what's been given to me, this is the good news, through the, through the work of another, it's a gift, not my own doing, is... Full access, a complete, complete doing away of my sin, a righteous standing before God, being brought fully into the favor of the living God, being able to call him father by being, by, by being given the inheritance that is his son's alone, being included in that, being united to his son. Um, so I think um, that it's the opposite of being ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. On the contrary, I brag about it. And the more accurately I brag about the gospel, the less impressive I look, right? The more I don't, I don't, I don't broadcast my sins for the sake of, um, of um, um, what's that word? Um, I can't think it's escaping me right now, but I don't, I don't, um, I, don't bra- I don't broadcast my sins to, um, just to be nasty or to whatever, but, but I, I clear, I'm open about the fact that I'm a sinner and I'm okay talking about the ways that I fall short and the ways that I've offended God because I know that I don't stand on that. That's not my identity. The righteousness of Christ is my identity. 
He's paid for my sin. And he, and he came for one kind of person, sinners. And so, um, and so the more accurately I brag about the gospel, it's not about I've done this and I've done this and my performance is this. Sometimes when people, when preachers and Christians talk about what they think is the gospel, a lot of times they're just talking about their own good behavior. That's not the gospel. Now, the fruit of trusting in Christ is a new life that actually leads to, and Paul's going to talk about this, character and obedience and, and love from the heart and the fruit of the Spirit. Um, but that's all from Jesus. That's all by faith. And um, so, so the more accurately I boast about the gospel, the less impressive I look and the more impressive Christ looks. Gospel bragging shows how wonderful Jesus is and how undeserving, yet happy and secure I am and we are, right? So that's just something that, you know, maybe something of the yield of what he's saying, but I think rejoice is a fine translation. Um, but I, I was interested to see that boast is, um, boast is maybe just a more, it's certainly a more plain rendering of that, of that word. I think it's like cal- calcomai or something. I, don't, I didn't write it down. Um, so, so, point one, I boast in, hope, in the hope of glory. Um, entering into the beauty and the life of the living God fully. He's in us now. We are, when we see him face to face, we're going to be made like him and we're going to be brought fully into perfect relationship with him and into this new creation. Um, secondly, I boast in my sufferings because they produce hope. And here Paul gets into, the, we're getting into the second section and then we'll move uh, through, through verse six to the close. Um, but I boast in my sufferings because they produce hope. And Paul does a little pivot here, but it's all connected. Paul uses the same word here in this next verse, in verse three. We rejoice or boast in our sufferings. So he says, uh, we rejoice or boast in the hope of the glory of God. But in the verse three, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. That's kind of a, it's a, Paul uses this sort of rhetorical device in this section a lot. He kind of says this, but then more than that, this, but then more than that, this. And he does that here, but it's a switch because you're expecting something glorious. But then he goes, but more than that, more than the glory of God, more than the fact that we have this unshakable hope that we're going to enter fully into his glory and this intimate union with him that will be uncompromised by our sin and this new creation, more than that. And then what does he say? We rejoice in our sufferings. Are you kidding me? He goes to shake our hand, but he punches us in the gut. But then he unpacks it. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, or we boast in our sufferings. Um, Why boast in our sufferings? Why rejoice? What does he go on to say? He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And And Chase talked about this yesterday from 1 Peter 4. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. There is hope again. This, this, this chapter, these, these 11 verses, really focusing in on one huge consequence of the gospel is this amazing hope that we have. And hope does not put us to shame. And, you know, we're in a culture that is increasingly hopeless as it loses sight of the gospel. And Paul was writing in a culture that was a Greco-Roman culture where the Greeks, I mean, there was a reason that they wrote amazing tragedies. We take, and I've talked about this before too, but we've, we take a linear view of the world for granted that we there was a start to things god has always existed he began things seth and i were reading from genesis 1 this morning i've started just this morning was the it was the formal start of our kitchen table got him up early took a shower start to okay we're we're gonna read the bible together every morning so it was fun but genesis 1 i was like let's start pray a little bit about him like why not start it at the start let's start at the start um but we were talking about just the fact that god is assumed and then he begins things with his word right 
And, uh, and then there's, there, we're heading somewhere. There's a telos. There's a, there's a goal. There's a consummation. There's a, there's a judgment. There's something that those who are in, in God, in Christ, are going to be brought into. That is going to be the fulfillment of all these deep desires that we have that are only partially fulfilled here, right? The one that we're made for will be with him face to face. But that linearity in history that really actually drives history and that drives hope um, is not, it's a Judeo-Christian biblical inheritance. It's not common when you start to study the different religions and worldviews of the, of the world. Um, even today, like Hinduism certainly uh, doesn't have, the Eastern religions don't have um, uh, a linear sort of trajectory of the, of the world. Um, Christian ripoffs like Islam do because it's a, it's a, it's a great imitation. Um, um, Marxism. Marxism is sort of a secular, uh, atheistic Christian ripoff. Um, Mormonism, again, a great heresy. Again, why does it have a linear view? Because it's, 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 it's feeding off of, of, the, of the truth, Christianity. But, but those heresies aside, um, you don't really have this view of, of a start and then we're heading somewhere. Like the, in, back to the Greco-Roman world, the Greeks wrote great tragedy because their view of the world was circ- of time was circular. Everything is just going back in on itself. So you read the book of Ecclesiastes and a lot of people think that um, there was massive Greek influence there because he kind of talks about everything just going in a circle. Now, I, I can disagree with that. Some of the he's engaging, engaging that worldview um, to defeat it. But uh, if, you, if, everything, if, if everything's just a snake eating its tail and everything's just going to... And you can, you can start to hear that and with, that's, this has been going for decades in the West with astrophysicists who are talking about, okay, we're looking for sort of one explanation for all things. We've jettisoned the idea, the biblical idea of that there is a God. He's always been. He started things. He's taking us somewhere. So how did everything get here? Where are we going? And the idea of like just an eternal, uh, eternal matter, which is not new. I mean, the Greeks believed, Aristotle believed in that, as far as I understand it. And the idea that um, the universe has always been, that it's expanding, that it's going to collapse, and then it's just going to expand again and collapse. And this, this is the cycle. There's no hope in that. There's no hope in that. It's just like, where are we headed? Nowhere. We're just headed to a collapse, and then everything's going to start over again, and then a collapse. And so... Um, Paul's writing into this and saying that um, we have this great hope even in our suffering. Um, and so, sorry, so why, why boast in our sufferings? Why rejoice? Well, he kind of lays it out for us, but um, give me, talk to me a little bit and then I'll share a couple things that I see. But why boast in our sufferings? And again, he sort of spells it out, but any comments? Mm-hmm. He's taking us somewhere, right? He's, he's broken down the wall of hostility between us and God, between us and one another. To use Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien's language, he wrote The Lord of the Rings, right? He's opened up a, a, a hole in the, in the wall, of the, the pitiless wall of the universe that, that, keep, you know, that keeps us from all that we were created for. Um, and he's, he's walked through it and he... And he is the way through that wall, through the, the gray rain curtain of the world into the, the, you know, the green, the great green fields and the, under a swift sunrise, to use, to use his metaphor. Um, yeah, so Christ has, has passed through death, and we no, no, no longer need to fear that. He's our captain. He's taking us somewhere. He's taking us to a new creation, to 
He was very self. What, what else? Why boast in our sufferings? Why rejoice? Well, I think suffering, even, even uh, someone as anti-Christian as Nietzsche recognizes that suffering is character forming. Mm-hmm. And, and Paul really talks about that here, doesn't he? And I think that's what he's saying. Yep. And you can also look at, again, you look at Jesus, right? He suffered uh, the cross, but he also, what's the phrase in the Hebrew? He learned, um, right? Yeah. Right, even his, even his uh, earthly existence, right? When he left the courts of heaven and took on human flesh oh. and he felt pain, like all that was uh, for the glory set before him. Mm-hmm. And so it's a certain sense like we know that as Christians we are to expect suffering because that is almost a, that's a hallmark of being one of his disciples. It's a mark of being his. Being I mean, Paul says that explicitly in, I have that right here, in Romans 8, verse 17, which we'll get to, he says, that is a sign that we belong to Christ when we suffer for Christ. And, and, and 1 Peter 4, which Chase preached on yesterday, touches on some of that, right? You're just laying there, yeah. Read it if you want to read it for us or read the part that you're in. Um, verse 13, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Yeah. And what does Paul say in Roman in excuse me Philippians three? He says there's a sweetness, there's a fellowship in his sufferings. There's a there's a when we not suffer because of sin, like Peter says in First Peter four, but when we suffer because of our faith in Christ, because the stand we're taking in the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we uh, there's a fellowship, a sweetness in being brought close to Him and knowing that we're suffering because of His name. That it's hard to describe, but you know it when you're in it. And it's, 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 it's beyond price. And it strengthens your faith and it strengthens your desire to run the straight race and to be with him and to be closer to him and not to let any sun, sin come between you and to, to get to the place where he brings you through death and you, and you, uh, you see him face to face. And, um, and so it can be a real, suffering can be a real tonic it can be a real character former, like I said yesterday in, it, at the communion table. Like We all know, even if we don't work out, that the, when you go to work out, you go to work out for one reason, and that's, to, that's for pain. Because the more pain you can inflict on yourself in a good way and the more pain you can endure, the stronger you're going to get because the way you get strong is you tear down muscle. Mm-hmm. And that's through pain. That's just the way. And so life oftentimes works that way, right? But if, you, if there's no, you know, like the, in the gulags, they would, um, they would break people down uh, mentally, and they would end up dying typically by giving them suffering and work, but that was pointless, kind of like a circular universe, right? Uh, and so they would have them take rocks from one end of the gulag, one end of the work camp to the other, and then they would, and then once they made that pile, they would take the they would take the rocks one by one back in baskets to the other pile, and that would break them down because their work was meaningless. It was just a big circle. It was a serpent eating his tail. There was they weren't headed anywhere. They weren't doing anything that they could see of value. Whereas the men that were given just work that was just as hard and backbreaking, if not more, building the barracks, building the place to live in in Siberia, they typically survived because there was meaning, there was purpose. And so Paul's saying here, we, there's a purpose in our suffering. It shows that we're his. It, uh, it is through our union with Christ. Oh, there's a sense in which he says elsewhere, like in Colossians, like we, that mysterious verse in Colossians 2 where, our suffering is making up. Paul says, I suffered to, to complete what is lacking in Christ's suffering, that, mis- that very mysterious verse. But because we're his body, there's a mysterious and a mystical and a very real sense in which we don't contribute any to our own salvation, but our suffering 
uh, for his name is completing the total suffering that he's called and appointed us to. And Peter talks plenty about that, right? We've been called to suffering. It's not pointless. It's forming character in us. It's making us long for Christ more. It's fully forming Jesus in us. It's causing us to taste of the sweetness of his fellowship more. It's causing us to run the straight race and long for him and that new creation. It's doing all these. It's a sign that we're his. Um, and, it's, and it's a sign that we're vitally united to him and we're, taste, we're experiencing his, his very suffering as his body as we suffer for his name. There's all that and so much more wrapped up into it. Um, um, and why do we boast in sufferings? Why do we rejoice? These sufferings are producing for us, and I've touched on this, and in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison to the suffering that we now endure, right? It's going to be the suffering that we now endure is intense as the worst suffering is if we're in Christ, the glory that we're going to enter into, to hook back into what Paul started this chapter with, is going to make the suffering seem like, like nothing, like a distant memory, all worth it. Um, and you can see that packed into that phrase in is it Hebrews 12 where it says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. It was, there's a sense in which it's saying it was all well worth it, all that he went through well worth it because of the glory and because of the joy that was coming. Um, this comes full circle just as we boast in our sure hope of glory. We boast in sufferings not only because they make us more like Jesus, but because in doing so, they prepare us to be the kind of people who will enjoy the new creation. And as soon as I say that, I think of, um, you know, this isn't what I was going to say, but uh, I remember seeing a comic on my New Testament prof's door once that was, um, you know, looking at your watch tank. We always run out of time. Um, looking at his, uh, the comic that said something like, Gosh, I can't even remember it now, but it was basically about how I want to, it was a Calvin and Hobbes, I think. And it was like, man, I want, I want to go to heaven, but I, uh, I don't, I want to go to heaven, but uh, I want to make sure that I can be naughty while I'm there or whatever. And the whole idea being that like, man, people want to get to heaven, but, but they have, but they're evil and they hate God. It's like, wait a minute. And this is what's, this is what I was thinking about and what is in my notes, which is, it makes me think of The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, which is my wife's favorite novel that she's read by Lewis. And it's the, the whole idea undergirding that, a lot of the idea undergirding that novel is that even those that, those that haven't submitted to God in Christ, that haven't trusted in him, that don't love him, um, that, have, that have insisted on uh, living life their way, even if they were given a wide open opportunity, they take a field trip, the Hellions take a field trip to heaven. Even if they were given open access to heaven, they would hate it because heaven is the unmitigated open access, the free access to the glory and the presence of the living God in Christ. And um, that would be like getting too close to the sun as a human being. You just, it would burn you up. Like you would hate it. And even the grass hurts the Hellions' feet as they walk on it because everything's so solid and their sin hollows us out. It carves us out. It makes us tinny and unwhole. And so, because um, evil in, in large part is, is privation. And so, um, suffering makes us solider, if I can make up a word. It makes us more substantial. It creates space in us for Christ to fill, to make us, to give us more glory. And the reason I use that word is because the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, and what it means is weight. It means weight. Like a stone has more kavod, more glory than a, than a feather. And there's a weightiness and a gravitas and a reality and a substantialness to things that are true and good and beautiful um, as opposed to things that are hollowed out. And there's a lot of that's packed into Psalm 1 where the righteous 
the both the righteous and the wicked will be judged, but it says the righteous will stand in the judgment because the righteous is like a tree that's rooted and that's tapped into the streams of living water. It's rooted in the word. It's filled by the spirit, full of the sap of the living God, flourishing. It has this subterranean life source, whereas the wicked are not a tree, but what? Like chaff. They're like chaff. They're like that lightest part of, of, uh, of wheat after it's beaten. That is just, there's a puff of wind. There's a puff of judgment that comes, and just, there's no roots. There's no substance. They're hollowed out, and, and the same judgment that the righteous endure and stand in, the wicked are just blown away by. There's no substance left. They're hollowed out. Um, and of course, that is all, that substance is all in Christ, given to us as a gift. But his life in us, his presence in us by the power of his Holy Spirit received through faith makes a real difference. It sanctifies us. And that's what Paul's going to be talking about through the, next, through the next few chapters, all the way through chapter 8, is the way that the life of Christ received by faith, as we are vitally united to him by faith, begins to make us what we truly are. The righteousness that's declared over us begins to work, the life of Christ begins to work in us in such a way that it makes us more and more like Christ. And suffering is one of the chief ways that that happens. And it's the mark of, it's one of the marks of a Christian, that we're his. Um, And through his life and through his death, he has redeemed suffering. So it's not pointless. Um, And all I really said, we could spend the rest of the year on these verses three and four, but all I really said about that is this is just an amazing, you know, concatenation. It's an amazing chain that Paul, that Paul lists in verses 3 and 4. Um, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Um, and it's an amazing chain. Um, and I just, you know, one of the things that I want for Seth are these verses. I should probably write them out and put them on, a, on his mirror. We should probably memorize them together. Um, but, you know, and I love how that's one of my biggest prayers for him, um, that he would understand that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope. And um, just the idea that Jesus, because he didn't come and parade around like, a, like the king we would expect and broadcast his glory and use his power to crush, but rather he used his power to be crushed, to lift us up by getting under us, like all the way down to hell under us. Um, so that Paul can say, like, because of what Christ has done, we can actually boast in suffering. Like, take the ancient worldview and still the worldview through Hinduism and the worldview even of Jesus' disciples because they misunderstood the scriptures and the worldview of Job's friends was like, man, if you're suffering, you're toast. Like, God disapproves of you. Jesus comes and shows us, like, no, actually, Paul can say, because of Christ, I'm boasting in my sufferings because I know they're making me more like Jesus. They're pulling me into Jesus. And they're, um, they're fully forming Jesus in me, and they're a mark that I'm his. Like, wow, what, a, what an amazingly hopeful, hopeful thing. And then such to the degree that in 2 Corinthians, right, Paul is at eight, chapter 8 and 9, Paul just goes through a list of all the ways that he suffered. And in so many other worldviews, that would have been like discrediting the fact that he was an apostle. Discrediting the fact that he was approved by God, but here he's saying, "Hey, because of what Christ has done, because of the life he lived, because of his death for us, I can now say this is a mark that I'm a true apostle." Um, so, uh, verse five. So, 
and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What is Paul doing here? Um, this, this, this verse kind of put a kink in my think, to quote, to quote Dr. Seuss. How do we know this hope is not just a feeling, but a reality we are walking toward? And we'll one day walk into to, uh, to pull from one of the images that C.S. Lewis uses in The Weight of Glory. Um, how do we know that our hope is a reality that will enfold us rather than just wishful thinking, a sort of theological pipe dream? Hope does not put us to shame because what? This hope that we have in this future glory doesn't put us to shame. It would if it were not real. Well, because the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Right. As objectively. Objectively. Truly. Uh, truly. Uh, poured into our hearts, right? Yeah, I always got Max Smith. Uh, this verse always perplexed me in other translations when they said shed abroad mm. in our hearts. Yeah. And I was always like, why? What does that That's a mean? Bit, yeah. But poured Unclear. Makes, Poor makes it a lot more right. Um, right. Although shit abroad is more poetic. That's true. That's probably from the King James. I didn't look that up, but yeah, hope does not put us to shame. So how does and how do, what is the re, the proof that Paul gives for? Hey, this hope we can rely on it. We're not going to be put to shame in hoping in Christ and this coming glory and being glorified and well, brought Holy Spirit, in. Holy Spirit yep. is the comforter. Right, mm-hmm. and it's something that you get. You were given at the moment of, of conversion. That's right. It's the sign and seal of our faith. Christ, Christ by His Spirit comes to reside in every believer, making us a new creation. Um, yeah. So because the Holy Spirit has, we have this this hope. It's not going to put us to shame. Be in Paul, the reason Paul gives us because the Holy Spirit has poured out by being poured out into us. He's poured out the love of God truly into. In Jesus, excuse me, into our hearts. So it's not just some feeling. It's not just me thinking about what Jesus has done for me, although I should do that and you should do that and we should do that. It's, re- it's a real objective spiritual thing. The very presence of the living God taking the actual love of God in Christ and pouring it out. Not like a tincture, not just a little bit, a pipette of love, like pouring out. And you see that at Pentecost, right? Pouring out the very love of the living God in Christ into our hearts. That is the mark, the real thing that happens. It's not, and it's more than a feeling. It's the very love of God into our hearts. Um, and that is what Paul says is the anchor for our hope. It's this objective fact that God comes to take up residence in us and he pours out the love of God into our hearts. Um, feelings come and go, but this is, this is real and this is the mark of a Christian. Um, God is not just someone to be believed on. Not just. He is a real being, the most real being, the most real thing. And the Holy Spirit really pours his real loving presence into our hearts. To be a Christian is to be a person changed by the love of God, which has been poured into us through faith in Jesus by the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. A couple things from this. The Holy Spirit brings God to us. The Holy Spirit is fully God. He is every bit as much God as the Father and the Son. He is fully God, and yet a distinct person of the, of the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit brings God to us, as it were, down to us as we look to Christ. He brings heaven down into our hearts. 
He is God. He puts Christ into us. Um, Christ is God. And and in a couple of different places in, the, in Acts, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. So I, that's why Jesus said it's better for you that I go because I'm going to send you the helper. And when I send you the helper, basically, I'm going to be able not just to be beside you and in one place, but in you and in anyone who trusts in me. Christ taking up residence in you is what the Holy Spirit is inside of you. So one of my things my mom, and by the way, I just noticed my mom's not here. One of the things that she uh, lo- loved to say, increasingly as we got older, you know, college age, and maybe more able to understand it and handle it, but, and then out of college was like, um, and maybe she said it when we were younger, I was just like, in one year out the other. That was another phrase she always said, in one year out the other. <laughs> the world doesn't revolve around you. I mean, all these phrases that your mom says that come, come back to you later in life, but um, when I'm gone, you're going to, no, she didn't say that as much, um, but she would say, hey, don't just pray for to love like God loves, pray for the very love of God. Lord, help me not, Lord, help me not just to love like you do, but help me to love with your love in me and through me. Because that's what Paul's talking about here. And that's the mark. That's the mark of a Christian. And it's one of the ways that we know that our hope is not just some theological idea. Um, so the Holy Spirit brings us up to God and he brings God down, if I can say that, and I can, to us. Um, and I think of Acts 2, like I said here, um, when I think of God coming down to us, when I think of us, him bringing us up to God, I think of Ephesians 2, how, how uh, we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Regardless of our circumstances, regardless of our feelings, regardless of where we are on planet earth, our greater reality is that we are seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And that will never change if we're in Christ. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit as we trust in Jesus and his work. So the Holy Spirit brings us to God and God to us. Um, thirdly and, and finally, what it cost him to bring us in. And this is, and I'm sorry that I haven't left much time for this because this is the most glorious part of, um, of, this, of this text. What it cost him to bring us in, to give us a certain hope of coming glory. Um, verse six, what a verse. What a verse. Paul continues, he says, for while we were still weak, at the right time. And so much could be said there, right? I've talked about this in past classes, but if you want to read, I'll just quote, a, just refer you to a book instead of spending much time waxing on this, but um, uh, the book Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. It's not the easiest read, but boy, I don't know that any other book that I've read as well describes, oh, by the way, voyeuristic is the word that I was grabbing for much earlier, and it just popped into my head, voyeuristic. I don't know why I couldn't think of it earlier. Um, the mojus, right? The right, just the right word. Um, but uh, Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton, nobody that I've read better describes the world scene and the Punic Wars and the fight between the Romans and the Carthaginians and how through those wars and through other things, and through the Pax Romana, the Roman peace that the Caesars brought about, especially Augustus, at the very, at the just the right time, Roman law, Roman roads, um, that Jesus came to this earth, and the gospel was able to, at just the right time, through the Roman ages, uh, spread like wildfire through the Mediterranean. Uh, Chesterton talks about that really well. Um, so, and this this phrase probably means even more than that. But at the right time. While we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. And here Paul gets into some of the most pregnant, most beautiful 
sublime, powerful verses in the whole Bible, um, in my opinion. Um, and let me just say this. So let me read verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. He's unpacking verse, verse 6. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. Here's, verse 8 is seriously just one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Verse 8. But God shows his love for us. The RSV has proves his love for us. Okay? Uh, but God proves or demonstrates or shows his love for us in that while we were, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, let me quote this and then, and then jump into that verse a little bit and unpack it some for us. Um, there's, a, uh, there's a quote by a guy named Edward Shilito, quoted by Christopher Watkin in Biblical Critical Theory. Uh, this is from his poem, Jesus of the Scars. And he says this, he says, The other gods were strong, but thou was weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Christ can minister to us in the deepest places because he's been to the deepest places and and far underneath them. And he can heal those places because what is not assumed is what is not healed. You know, only what Christ has assumed can he heal. And as a man, he has... And as the God-man, he has assumed the worst and the scariest and the most sinful and evil of places. He has taken them upon himself. He has tasted them. And so the redemption that we're moving into, not just the salvation, but the full restoration, which is where I'll end and where Paul ends this, I think, this, um, this passage, is going to be complete. Complete in Christ. That's, that's our hope. That's the glory that we're heading to. It's not just, hey, I'm saved from the wrath of God. It's that I'm going to be brought into my deepest longings are going to be met. Uh, in Christ Jesus. I'm going to be fully restored, fully put back together, fully integrated because what sin does is it disintegrates us. It disjoints us. Um, verse 8 though, here it is. This cements the truth that Paul's thesis for, uh, for Romans in, in, uh, in, Roman, in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is not averse to or exclusive of the equally foundational and glorious truth that the gospel shows us God's great love for sinners. Um, because what I, you know, what I sort of belabored in, uh, in our lesson on, in, on, Roman, on his thesis in Romans 1, 16 and 17 is that what, is, what does the gospel show us? It shows us the righteousness of God. How he cannot countenance sin. And how yet it shows us his great righteousness and it shows us at the same time how Christ shows us how righteous God is and how inflexible he is when it comes to sin. And at the same time, it shows us how he saves us. Um, but it also shows us how much he loves us. John says that in John 3, 16, but Paul says that so clearly here. The ESV says, but God shows his love for us. But again, the, the New Revised Standard says, but God proves his love for us, which I think is even more powerful. He proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if, you're, if you ever doubt the love of God, what Paul is saying here is that he's proven it. Look to Christ. Don't look to your circumstances. Don't look to how you're feeling. Look to Christ dying for us while we were still sinners. Not while we loved him, while we hated him, while we rebelled against him, while we crucified him. He hung there for our sin. That's, that's proof of God's love for you. Forget about your feelings. Forget about your depression. Forget about what you've eaten that day or not eaten that day. Forget about who's dumped you or who hasn't dumped you. Forget about the weather. Forget about what's happening in your life that is super real. Um, forget about your circumstances. He cares about those. He enters into those. He's with you. Proof of his love for you 
even if you feel abandoned, is that you are far from abandoned, that he hung on a cross for you when you hated him, when I hated him. That's what Paul's saying here, right? Um, so the word here, show, in the ESV means to demonstrate, but it can also mean to commend. And I think this adds a nuance to Paul's meaning here. How so? If the word includes this meaning, Paul is saying that God not only shows us how much he loves us by sending his son to save us, but also that in sending his son to save us, he's recommending his saving love to us. He's encouraging us to embrace Christ and to run into the Father's arms. Um, on this note, let me quote a very brief quote from Tom Schreiner. He says, To separate the Father from the Son in the act of self-giving would grossly distort the New Testament witness. And so what Paul says is here that, is that, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still, still sinners, Christ died for us. So this speaks to the fact that not only does God prove his love for us in dying on the cross for us, but he proves his love for us in gladly sending us his own beloved and precious son for us to torment and to kill. And, and, and Isaiah unpacks that in Isaiah 53 so beautifully. He was pleased to crush him. Not because he hated him, because he loved him perfectly, but because he also knew that the only way for us to be saved was for him to crush his son and to pour out the wrath that was due to us onto his perfect son. I mean, that sort of love is, it's really incomprehensible. All we can do, we can't comprehend it, we can only apprehend it, we can only touch it. Um, I think this is sort of a John 3.16 on steroids. John 3.16 is wonderful, but it gets all the press. But I mean, this verse... Why do I say it's a John 3.16 on steroids? Mm-hmm. But it emphasizes that it was done um, when we were still sinners. That's right. John doesn't say that, and John's wonderful, but this is... And that's the remarkable thing. That's the remarkable Christ thing. He died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. He died while we were still sinners, which while we the, still hated which him. The prim- which is the proposition that undergirds justification by faith. That's right. That's right. So, um, so I love that he's underlining that here. He proves his love for us by sending his own son, by coming and dying for us himself, but by not just dying for us, but dying for us who were still sinners, who still hated him. What's the implication? What's the, uh, sorry, what's, yeah, what's implied here? What's suggested? What's sort of tacit? And I didn't do digging on this. I didn't do enough study on this, but I didn't open enough commentaries, but when he says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Now, it may just be to underline what Jordan said, which is that he's underlining, hey, he didn't die for good people. He died for evil people that hated him, that nailed him to a cross. That's what we did with God when he came in our presence. And he used that to save us and he used that to shed his love abroad and to open up a wall in the pitiless wall of the world for us through death into life. But what's, what's tacit, what's maybe implied, possibly, I, I tread lightly here, in while we were still sinners? He's speaking to saints now. He's speaking to people who are in Christ. He's speaking to people who are trusting in Christ. What's implied there, maybe? We would still deny him. We would still sin. Not follow him like we should. Unpack that some for me, Cheryl. Yes, we do still sin, but I almost, go ahead, uh, Kaylee. It is true that we still sin, absolutely. I'm kind of maybe reading the opposite suggestion there, but I could be wrong. Kaylee, you raised your hand, did you? No? Oh, 
Am I going crazy? Okay. Anything else while we were still sinners? Well, what is it maybe suggesting? Of, yeah, it might not be right. Again, um, it's by grace alone, mm-hmm. because grace, as we've said, is unmerited favor, right? And so... Um, That's certainly underscored, because yeah. he died. Who did he die for? Sinners. What I'm, I'm seeing... Yeah, I'm go ahead. Saying, uh, Laurence, maybe it was you who raised your hand, no, not Kaylee. No, okay. no, I didn't. But, <laughs> but I'm, I'm still thinking he's talking about the future one. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's saying, look, hey, sinners, one and all, come. He died for you. Like Jesus said, I came for one type of person, sinners. Um, I'm I'm the doctor. I'm the great physician. I came for the sick. So it's an open invitation to those who, like, no sin. You can't sin too much. For Christ to have come for you. He's a, he's, his, his, his salvation is greater than any sin. That's certainly the case. What I'm seeing here maybe is that while we were still sinners, it seems to me to imply that um, we were sinners when Christ died for us, but now that we're in Christ, we are no longer sinners. In other words, what I mean by that is not to be heretical. John tells us very clearly when we are in Christ, when we're new creations in Christ, we still sin. If we say that we are without sin, we are liars, and the truth is not in us. John, that's 1 John 1, I think, verse 9. But we are no longer, I think Paul is also very clear about this later in this book, we're no longer characterized by sin. We're no longer, we sin, but we are no longer sinners. We're not called, to my understanding, in the New Testament, the church is no longer addressed as, hey, sinners. We were sinners. He died for us in that state, but our character and our composition and our status has been changed from sinner to saint. Holy one, called, set apart. The life of Christ now in you, making you more and more like him. We still sin, but it doesn't characterize us and it doesn't hold power over it, the same power over us. It doesn't enthrall us anymore. We sin, but we are now saints. That's, our, that's what characterizes us now, but not because of anything we've done but rather because of what he's done, right? And so that, that, is, that is, a to me, an implication. It's not the main point. It may not even be any of the point that he's saying, but I just found that interesting. Um, that, that, that's no longer, because Paul never says, he always addresses the church as saints. You know, we are saints who sin, but we are simul justus et peccator. We are justified, we are declared righteous, and we continue to sin, but sin no longer characterizes us. And if it does characterize us, and there's, if there's not some degree of freedom from sin and hatred of sin and sorrow over sin, then we need to seriously question whether or not we're his. What were you going to say? I, 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 uh, I think that makes sense because to me, like what this whole chapter that we've, or the part of the chapter that we've read so far, is about providing objective assurance for the believers in one's salvation. And when I think about what Rome says, Rome hates the doctrine of assurance. Mm. You know, you can't have assurance uh, according to Rome. Um, you need the priests because you kind of have to meet meet Christ halfway. You've got yeah, to, you know, and all that. And yeah. so, uh, this to me is really emphasizing that um, uh, yes, we do still sin. But that ought not to undermine our assurance that we are in Christ. Whereas in Rome, what Rome says is that you sin, you have to do penance, right. you have to do, 
X, Y, and Z right. to get back in right standing with God. You know? What's that? <laughs> no, it's, it's one of the... Lawrence is watching YouTube. Well. No, no. Right. No, you know? I'm messing. Your phone is a papist. <laughs> didn't like my invective. <laughs> <laughs> I liked your invective. It's good. Um, no, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, all good thoughts. So anyway, that was a bit of a, a bit of a rabbit trail. But Paul is certainly underlining the fact that uh, again, I think I see it as sort of John three sixteen on steroids that um, God, the gospel shows us and underlines the righteousness of God yet to save us, but it also underlines and proves and demonstrates his great love for us, regardless of our feelings and circumstances. Because that while we were still sinners, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. Um, now, moving through, uh, um, Paul heaps up terms. We have about five minutes to close. And we've sort of been asking questions. I did this kind of last week. But we've been asking questions throughout the lecture. So I'll just lean on that and say, I'll close sharp at nine. And then we won't, we won't have, we can, we can stay longer for questions, but I'll cut it off. I'll cut the recording off. But Paul, if you notice in verses 6 through 10, he heaps up terms for us, those for whom Christ died, uh, for whom the Father sent his beloved Son. The weak in verse 6 were the ungodly in verse 6 again, were sinners in verse 8, and were enemies of God in verse 10. Again, when we're outside of Christ, before trusting in Christ. Okay, why does he do this? Tom Schreiner again, to quote him, he says, Paul wants to underscore the greatness and distinctiveness of God's love in sending Christ to die for those who are wicked and rebellious and who hate him. To sort of underscore the point that he makes um, in verse 8 and the point that Jordan just made for us again as well. Um, in using all these terms, he's underscoring the greatness and distinctiveness of God's love in dying for those who hated him. Um, which should give us a great confidence. And it should give us a great confidence not only in our, even as we continue to sin but not be characterized, and hopefully we're, we're filled with sorrow over our sin. We, don't, we understand we don't bear that guilt anymore. Christ bore that for us. But it should fill us with sorrow that pushes us toward Christ. Like Peter in John 21, who, when we see that Christ who died for us and we, we denied him three times, we, and we feel our sin and we understand our sin more than ever as we grow in Christ. A sign of, a sign of being sanctified, a sign of being mature in Christ is you, you feel and you see your sin more and more, actually. More and more. It's, we talked about this before. It's the ungodly who don't think that they have a problem with sin. The more godly you are, the more you're going to see your sin, and the more you're going to see that the solution is Christ. It pushes you toward Christ, not away from him. Like Peter in John 21, we get in the water and we swim to Jesus because we know that he is, being close to him is the best thing for sinners. The best, that's why he came. He came to get close to us, to be among us, and to die on a cross for us, to save sinners like us. So, um, so verse 10 uh, for while we, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, there's that device again, that rhetorical device, much more now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? What does this mean? Not sure, but possibly this. We're not only saved from, but saved for. Yeah? What do I mean by that? We're not only saved from the just wrath of God, but, and not a lot of times we stop at that. Like I'm saved, I'm saved from God's wrath. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. I'm, uh, I'm saved from hell. Yes, that's all true. Praise God. But we're also saved for. We're saved for the glory. We're saved for the abundant life that Christ came to bring us into that's going to last forever. We're saved to love him and to be loved by him and to have our souls satisfied in him and for that love to pour out from us into the world that um, God has put us in. 
and that we remain in until we die or he comes again. Let me put it another way, looking to the text to guide me. Jesus' death, Paul says, saves us from God's wrath, but his life saves us for God, not from God. It delivers us by clothing us in Christ's righteousness and thrusting us into the arms of his Father, who is now ours in Christ as well. Right? Um, Now, verse 11, as we close, is surprising because Paul says again, more than that... How can he say more than that? How can we more than that? Verse 10. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Um, That's a surprising more than that. Uh, An alternate translation is, but not only that, but there is more. In other words, that's how you could translate that. But there is more. We rejoice. We now rejoice in God. Okay, we're not just saved from the wrath of God um, uh, and saved by his life. We also are brought into being a state where we're able to enjoy God, to rejoice in God. So here's the progression. His death saved us from, his life saved us for, and the cherry on top, the point of all this is the Westminster Confession question and answer one, right? What is the chief end of man, class? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Or C.S. Lewis, I think uh, before him, um, Richard Baxter, the Puritan, on to C.S. Lewis, on to John Piper, to sort of connect the generations, said, hey, let's tweak that to the point of life is to glorify God, not only and enjoy him forever, connected but somewhat disjointed. The point of God is to glorify God. The point of life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. The best way that we can glorify the Lord is to fully enjoy him, and we do that in Christ, being delivered from the wrath of God and brought into the full favor of, of the Father, who rejoices um, to bring us into to the, to his home, into his, um, to his very arms. So we aren't just safe from him, we live in him and with him, quorum Deo, uh, before his face. Not only do we live with him as if merely coexisting, we rejoice in, in him and he in us. Um, through Jesus, we have received reconciliation. I think of 2 Corinthians 5. Uh, what is this, as we close, what does this word imply? This word reconciliation, which literally means reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship, this word reconciliation that we've been brought into implies that something broken, something has been broken, and that something broken has been repaired. So again, we have not just been saved from things by Jesus. We've also there's a promise of full restoration that is, is coming. And what Paul does here is that he is showing us, one of the takeaway truths, glorious truths from this whole text, is that he's showing us that there's no such thing as being justified, being declared righteous, the instant that we look on Jesus, and not being fully glorified one day. Whatever God starts, he will finish. His spirit in you is a guarantee. It's a guarantee that if he has started with you, if Christ has come to live inside of you, you are a new creation and he will take you all the way. Paul says this literally in, in one verse in Romans 8.30, which we'll get to in a few weeks. On, we'll get to in January or February. But he literally says that. He, he says it less clearly here, but he, he crystallizes it in Romans 8, um, verse 30. Because God is outside of time. Mm-hmm. We're in time, so we see... Glorification is the end point, you know, after our death. Right. But, but in God's perspective, right. God's perspective, it's all it's been all done. One time. It's all been done. It's all been done. Because it's, it's all, all in Christ. 
And he says that literally that language, you can exegetically pull that theological truth out from Romans 8.30 because Paul says in Romans 8.30, and we'll get there, but you can look it up now or look it up after class. He literally says, in Christ, we've been justified. We've been, I don't think he uses the word sanctified. Something else, we've been glorified. And the glor- glorification is... Uh, a future, it's going to happen when we see Jesus face to face in the new creation. When he makes us, when he makes what he started in this, what's in seed form now, fully, fully flowered. But Paul states it in the past tense. Just as clearly as I've looked on Christ and been declared righteous with his standing and his righteousness. Read it for us, Jordan. Oh, that's and you those at whom it. he predestined, he also called. Mm-hmm. And those whom he called, he also justified. justified. And those whom he justified, justified. he also glorified. He's done it. He's already, it's all been done in Christ. And so let me wrap. Um, God will never start saving one, someone and not finish. He will never save someone halfway. He will not give half of his son because Christ is our salvation. He will never give half of himself. Christ is not divided. The justified will be glorified, which again, Paul says plainly in the verse that Jordan just read. Um, I have this close with the story, and I'm not gonna. I'm gonna skip it because we need to finish. But let me just say this: um, what Paul does here in talking, in finishing in verse 11, with this idea that we're gonna be fully restored, uh, and not, we're not just saved, but we're saved to be restored, and we're not we're not just justified, but we all who are called are declared righteous. They're justified, and all who are justified are already glorified. It's as good as done because it's in Christ. Um, he's teeing up. He's teeing up um, the idea that, you know, again, the restoration, the idea that we were, we've been reconciled in Christ, that we have been, there's this, we, um, we've been estranged, we've been broken, and Christ came to make us whole. He came to bring us home. That, that takes us back to the garden. That takes us back to the whole story. It takes us back to the fact that he didn't make us this way. Estranged, disoriented, disintegrated. Uh, afraid of God, not transparent and vulnerable, putting walls up under the wrath of God, sick in our sin, condemned through the evil. God didn't make us that way. Sin made us that way. Our rebellion made us, but Jesus came. So what it tees up is our next section next week, which is that Jesus came not just as our Savior, but as the second human, as the second Adam, which is Adam means human, as the second man. The first man was made glorious. That glory was shattered and dissipated and lost through sin. Jesus as our second representative and the better and second Adam and, and second human in history came to restore all that. All, to restore the glory that was lost and to, and to better it. To ante up on it. And so that's where, that's where Paul's, he teased that up and that's where he's going to take us in this amazing next section that will finish out Romans 5. Um, and we'll get through We'll get through Romans 6, God willing, in two, in two sections, and then we'll, finish, we'll stop for Christmas. Um, so let me, uh, let me close this in prayer. We're at an hour 26. Lord, thank you so much for this crew. Thank you for bringing um, the folks that you brought tonight, Lord. Um, thank you for your word and that your word takes us to you. It takes us to your son. It spotlights the love that you've demonstrated and proved to us in space and time, in history, 
by giving us your own dear son to bear your wrath for us and to bring us all the way into your home, into your smiling, uh, open-armed embrace. Um, It gives us a sure and an unshakable hope, not just of salvation, but of full restoration. Um, That's where we're headed. And, and, and we have the deposit of that now. Uh, Holy Spirit, thank you for bringing Jesus into us, for pouring out the real love of God into our hearts, uh, for bringing us up uh, to the throne room to be seated with Christ, regardless of our feelings or circumstances. We bless you. We love you. Uh, fill us even now. Uh, go with us as we go home and throughout the rest of this week and uh, bring us back safely next week and, and bless the work of our hands. In Jesus' name, amen.